to spend a little time uh, inside the um, gallery. We've entered into this gallery, this hall of faith, and down the walls of this gallery we're seeing portraits that are painted for us. And as you may notice, we're just given a brief time as we stand in front of each portrait and examine it. And we're given a few words about uh, this person that we're looking at, just a few thoughts concerning who they are and what God did through them. And so uh, we then, before we know it, even before we feel like we've absorbed much of what uh, Abel might have to contribute, we are moving on to Enoch and the Non and the Noah and on to Abraham and on to Moses and on and on we go. And in some of these, we stop and we see great uh, uh, um, sense of victory and overcoming and uh, and the battles fought and won and so forth. And, and then in others, we see another aspect of faith. Look in, your, in the back of your, uh, of your chapter there, about verse 33, he says, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. That's all great, and that's all, yeah, that's all, that's what we want in the hall of faith, but look again. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others had trial, cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with a sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. These all, the ones that had the great victory, and the ones who suffered unimaginable torment, these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. Oh, they're still waiting for the completion. They're still waiting for the perfection. They're still waiting for the whole of the kingdom to gather together in one place, and we're part of that, but... I want to tell you, these that suffered and were tormented and torn asunder, the Lord said of them, the world wasn't worthy of them. Uh, oh, yes, the, the victory of faith and the, uh, the shout of uh, glory and all of that that goes with many of these is what we like to identify with, but uh, just as important to identify with the faith of those who did not get the deliverance and did not have their sons raised from the dead and did not have the escape from the torturer's uh, uh, tongs and fires. No, all of these died in faith, waiting on the promise, not having yet received the promise, but looking forward in faith to it. And that's what the Hall of Faith is all about. These portraits that we're going to be looking at down through the next few weeks as we stop by each one are going to be portraits of victory, whether they are military victory, whether they are uh, victory in the sense or, uh, or deliverance in the sense of uh, 
uh, help from the enemy or raise those raised from the dead or whether they are uh, portraits of those who had no such deliverance but uh, trusted God by faith anyway. That's what we're looking for. So as we enter into the front doors of this gallery of faith, we uh, notice uh, right uh, at the front the first portrait that we come to is the portrait of a man called Abel. We don't know a great deal about Abel in the Bible. We do know that he is one of the sons of Adam and Eve, and so we stop by to spend some time at the portrait of Abel this evening. He was a shepherd by trade. He brought of the sheep of the flock. So he's a shepherd, a shepherd beloved of God, obviously. And he is hated without cause by Cain. He's hated for his righteousness' sake. And his righteousness had to do with uh, his obedience to the Lord. He's not righteous for any, anything of himself, but he's, he's righteous because of the pronunciation uh, or the pronouncing of his righteousness by God. And he's hated for that. He becomes the first martyr. And as we're standing in the hallway and in the gallery and the light is focused on Abel's portrait, we're looking upon him and recognizing that he is the first martyr. He's the first human in the human family that actually tasted death. Adam and Eve had never seen death until they came across the skinned bodies of the animals that God slew for them and took the skins of those animals and clothed them. So that was the first uh, sense of death that they had. But it was the death of animals. And now they have begun to really taste the bitterness of death as they look upon the slain body of their son. And they touch Abel and he doesn't respond. And there's no movement in his chest and there's blood coming from his head and soaking into the ground and and he's not listening to them. And as Adam and Eve weep over the body of their son, now comes flooding in the full understanding of what their choice to sin has brought about. Sin, when it's finished, bringeth forth death. Though they didn't die physically immediately when they sinned against God in disobeying Him, they began to die. And now they see for the first time what it looks like. When a man dies and when his body no longer responds and when he is just as the slain animals that they had been clothed with, they come to that stark reality for the first time. And yet in our Bible we find that Abel is a, is a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He is the first shepherd and he is a picture of the great shepherd he is the righteous one who is slain by the guilty one, as was our Savior. Abel's offering is an offering by faith, as we saw in verse 4. There's a connection uh, with it that is made there. The, the connection of his offering is the connection of a sacrifice by faith. His uh, offering, his sacrificial offering, his slaying of this uh, sheep and bringing it to the Lord as a sacrifice, established several things. It, it uh, established that he realized the necessity of a blood sacrifice. He recognized the necessity of this as God had obviously ordained it and revealed it to him. 
He believed God when God said this would be the acceptable sacrifice. For the moment that, uh, from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned, God set into motion uh, His redemptive plan. He even as they were in their sins, promised them that there would come one who would redeem them, uh, that would bruise the head of the serpent, as He told them in uh, Genesis three and fifteen. So here's Abel. Uh, coming and recognizing the need and necessity, the absolute essential nature of a blood sacrifice. And we see, too, that, Abraham, that Abel's desire was to please God, it was not to uh, satisfy himself, but it was to please God. We see why his sacrifice was superior to Cain's. We, uh, we read in the First book of Genesis, as we start our Bible reading every year, we always read of the sacrifice of Cain, the sacrifice of Abel. Abel brought of the fruit of the ground. He was a farmer, and he had certainly choice fruits to offer. But we see why uh, that Abel's sacrifice was superior to Cain's, why God called it a more excellent sacrifice than Cain's. It wasn't because of the appeal to the eye of the sacrifice. We're comparing the two. Looking at Cain's, Cain's appeared much more beautiful. It was the freshest of the fruit. It was the choicest of the land. It was prepared and ordered. It was put together in a very uh, beautiful way. It was something that you would, uh, you know, you would be a, that would appeal to you. If you've uh, gone to a hotel and you have been treated uh, uh, as a guest and they've got you, someone's gotten you a basket of fruit and so forth, it's a attractive thing and it makes you, um, you know, it makes you uh, feel like yeah, that's something there I want, you know, and you begin to open the basket and dig through and see all the goodies that are in there and enjoy that and uh, it's appealing, it is. That was the way Cain's uh, offering was. Certainly he had done all he could to make it appealing to the eye. So the acceptance of the sacrifice had nothing to do with the appeal because on the other hand you've got Abel bringing a sacrificed lamb. Its throat has been slit the blood is spilled out, and there's the, the death of the animal, and the blood spilled out. It had no appeal as far as the appearance to the eye in comparison to Cain's, and yet it was the more excellent uh, sacrifice. It was the one uh, accepted by God. Now, this was not God's arbitrary choice to accept Abel's and reject Cain's offering. It wasn't an arbitrary uh, arbitrary uh, choice like that. No, that's not the reason why that uh, Abel's was superior to Cain's. Uh, Cain's uh, offering was, uh, was beautiful. It, it uh, pictured harvest. It pictured plenty. But Abel's spoke of sacrifice and death. And so his was the acceptable sacrifice. Abel's was properly foreshadowing something. It was properly foreshadowing the Savior's coming sacrifice for sins. This didn't happen with Cain's. It was not the message of Cain's offering at all. We'll see what the message was uh, as we think about it and uh, go down through there and look at the one and the other. Cain's suggested that man's got the answers and that man can put together something that will appeal to God and that will be acceptable in the eyes of God. Man's ingenuity uh, can do it he can uh, prepare the offering in such a way that God cannot possibly reject it, even though Cain must have known as well as Abel did 
what God required, you know, what God uh, had said, the, the repentance and the, uh, and the, the uh, offering of a, of a lamb, the sacrifice, the, uh, the offering, <coughs> excuse me, the offering of blood was absolutely essential. And uh, Cain must have known this as well as Abel and the others who ever... Uh, Others there were. Cain married somebody, you know, uh, when, um, when he did come to marry after he was put out. And, and Cain mentions that he's afraid of what will happen to him, what others would do to him. So there, were, there is a period of time that's taken place, and there are others around, obviously, uh, at that time. But So uh, Cain's offering is, uh, is man's answer. It's man's religion. Here's religion comes and offers, you know, what a religion has to offer. And here we dress up in the gold and the, uh, and the scarlet and, and the purple and we have uh, the assemblage and we have the beautiful cathedral and have all the trappings of religion that are there and all of the ceremonial, uh, uh, the ceremonial procedures or rituals that take place and it's also beautiful and also appealing and also magnificent with the great columns and and the stately uh, buildings and the Notre Dames and all of those things that the religion has to offer. But religion offers a basket of beautiful fruit rather than what God required. Cain suggested that man's got the answers, but Abel's said that man brought about a curse and brought about the shedding of blood and brought about death. That's what Cain's offering had to say that sacrifice and death is what's going to be connected with this offering and so it was there was a beauty in Cain's offering but there was blood in Abel's so Cain's basket of choice fruits preached faith in self while Abel's preached faith in God and that's the difference as we look at Abel's portrait that's the message that's still uh, emanating from that portrait of Abel as we look at it the testimony that God gave concerning Abel was that Abel was righteous. He obtained this witness, we read it. He obtained this witness from God, this act of faith. God said was a, what he did was an act of faith. He simply believed God and he obeyed God. That was all he uh, did. And that's all that he asked of us, to believe God and to do what he said. So, uh, so Abel did that. Abel made that offering as a witness, as a testimony that he believed God and he, and he wanted to obey God. It's of the utmost importance, my friends, that, and you saw it there when we read it. It was God's testimony that Abel was righteous. It was God's testimony. It wasn't Adam's or Eve's. It wasn't Cain's testimony. It wasn't the people at the land of Nob. It wasn't the community at large. It wasn't his cousins and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles. It wasn't any of those who all may have said uh, in agreement that, Cain, that Abel was righteous, but the important declaration is the, the declaration that God had to say about Abel, that he had this t testimony that, and that he was righteous. God declared him righteous. That's, uh, that's the one that matters. And tonight, for us, that's the one that matters. It doesn't matter how many others declare you and me good or declare you and me righteous. It doesn't matter because... Their opinion doesn't count for much before God. Uh, what does matter is that God has declared you righteous as a child of God. To have that, we must 
have come like Abel came with an acceptable sacrifice. It's still by faith. It's still by a, a sacrificed lamb. In our case, it's the Lamb of God who taketh away the sin of the world. It's the Lamb of God. And so has Jesus Christ declared you to be righteous, then you are righteous. Have, has everyone else declared us to be righteous? Well, it doesn't matter. Uh, what does matter is that, that uh, we've de been declared righteous by our Lord. And the Bible said, we just read it there, that he being dead yet speaketh. Cain's message, uh, you know, is a message, but it's not the one that yet speaketh. Uh, Abel's is the one that yet speaketh. By his blood sacrifice that is recorded there, his message of an acceptable sacrifice is yet preaching. By his faith he that he demonstrated there, his message of faith and obedience to God is yet speaking. The first man to die is still giving testimony today. As we're sitting here tonight, we're hearing Abel's testimony from the preserved Word of God that's been uh, there, it's been evident since Abel was killed until this present hour. And so that's, uh, that's a remarkable truth that he being dead yet speaketh. Many people aren't very concerned about what kind of testimony they leave behind, but Abel was. Cain wasn't. Many people are not, not real concerned about what is left in their wake behind them and just moving forward, moving ahead and thinking, you know, uh, I don't really care uh, what, uh, what my testimony is going, uh, going forward. I'm just going forward. But uh, that is, a, that is a, an error that many people make. They're not too concerned about the kind of testimony you leave behind them, but we ought to be. Abel left the right kind of testimony behind him. He had this testimony, as Enoch did, that he pleased God. He had this testimony that he obeyed God. He had this testimony that God declared him righteous. And so it was. Uh, do you and I have Abel's testimony? And if not, we ought to. Then we look at uh, Enoch next as we're moving down through the uh, series of portraits. We finish with Abel. I noticed something as I look at Abel's portrait. Did you notice the hills behind? And there, there's a light in the back of the hills behind there. And it's brighter than the light of the sun, it seems. And as we look past Abel, we really notice the light that is back behind there, the light of righteousness that is back behind there, that becomes the most notable element of the portrait. It's not really Abel we're focused on. It's, it's what's behind him. It's what's above him. It's what's back there in the, uh, to us, the background. But when we focus on that, it sort of becomes the foreground and becomes the, becomes the focus of the portrait after a while. That's what God wants. He didn't spend the chapter on each one of these men of faith and give you all the details of their lives and victories and tell you how tall they were and what color their eyes were and how they had the beautiful bald heads and so forth. He does tell that. I mean, about the only time he talks about heads is when he talks about uh, the bald head of Elijah, you know. Uh, it doesn't say a whole lot more about hair. but uh, So I like that uh, kind of the focus is on the bald head in the scriptures. And so must be something to that. I wish somebody would make a sermon on that sometime. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's not what God is intending here. He's not really wanting us to put all our focus on Abel and how great Abel was. He wants us to focus on how great Abel's God was. That's what he wants us to focus on, how great uh, God's word in Abel's life was. That's what he's requiring of us. Now we're moving down, and we've come through the gallery, and uh, the lights dim down in Abel, and now we come to the next uh, uh, portion there, and we sit down at the bench there, and we now comes into focus Enoch. And here he is, and 
We see Enoch's got a, he, he's got a good translation. I, I'm for a good translation, aren't you? The King James Bible is a good translation. You say, well, you know, God's not in translations. But every time translation's mentioned in the Bible, God has something to do with it, you know. So, so uh, God might have something to do with this translation you have in your hand here. Uh, maybe just God was in it, you know. And so, uh, so he's got it. He's got that. And he's got something to do with this translation taking place here in uh, the fifth verse. Read it again. By faith, Enoch was translated that he should not see death, was not found. They were looking for him, but they couldn't find him. He was not found. They were looking all over for him. They were calling for him. Uh, Enoch, where are you? Enoch, where'd you go? Grandpa, where are you? He had this, trans, he had this uh, testimony that uh, he pleased God. He was not found. He, he, uh, he did not see death. He was not found because God translated him. For before his translation, he had this testimony that he pleased God. Before he left the scene, he had a testimony that he pleased God. So as we're looking at Abel uh, tonight, let, let's focus on his portrait a little bit. Um, now, now, you that are saved here, and I assume it's everyone here is saved, and uh, thank God for that. If you're not, stop the service and let's get you to Christ. But if you are, thank God for that. But uh, we who are saved are translated also. Take your Bible for a minute. Hold your place in Hebrews 11. Look back to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Here's some more translation work, and I see God's in it again. God's in this translation work sometimes. And so Colossians chapter 1 and verse number 12. Colossians 1 verse 12. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Colossians 1 verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us. You see it's already happened. Hath translated us into the kingdom of of his dear son. We had a translation take place. You used to watch Star Trek, you uh, science fiction lovers. And uh, they had that translator that would beam you up, Scotty, you know, and, and up you'd go, you know, or down you'd go. So translated from one place to another. Uh, we, as the children of God, have a translation that happened to us. We got translated out of the kingdom of this world and into the kingdom of God. We got translated, and I thank God for your translation. Are you a good translation? <laughs> did God get all of you out of the world and into his kingdom? Uh, did you leave your wallet behind there in the world? <laughs> get it out, get it in. A fellow got uh, getting baptized, and the pastor said, you better take your wallet out. And he said, no, I, wanna, I want that baptized too. I want to go all the way. So, so uh, uh, have you had your wallet baptized? Are you all in? Are your hands and your feet and, and uh, your thoughts and your eyes and your ears your likes and your loves, are they translated into the kingdom of God? And so it was with us. We, we have that testimony. Uh, God has translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. Thank God for that translation. Here, though, with Enoch, uh, we see that uh, God said he had this test. He already had this testimony that he pleased God. So with Enoch, he had a consistent testimony already going before his translation took place. Now, we have sometimes, all of us, please God, sometimes I believe that you're pleasing God tonight because you chose to be in the house of God with God's people. That pleased God. I mean, would anybody say God's probably not pleased with us being in his house tonight? No. God's, God's 
likely less pleased with us staying home and watching, you know, an episode of uh, Desperate Housewives or something than uh, being here. Um, so I'm glad you're here. Uh, let the Desperate Housewives continue to be desperate and just leave them alone in their desperation <laughs> and give them to Jesus, you know. But uh, I'm glad you're here. So I, I believe that the Lord is pleased with you tonight being here. So we do have a testimony. We please God. God is pleased with you when you get up in the morning and open your Bible and and try to hear from Him. God's pleased with you when you try to spend some time talking with Him in prayer. God's pleased with you when you try to, you know, be conscious of souls and give out a gospel track and talk to someone about their soul or speak to a neighbor or give a word of encouragement. God's pleased with you when you put an offering in for a missionary and uh, when you are faithful in giving of your tithes. <coughs> God's pleased with you in all these things. God's pleased with you when you try to be a good dad, a good husband, Good wife, good mom. God's pleased with you. He's, it's obvious, you know, that as a parent, he's pleased with his children, trying to do right and trying to honor him in their lives. And so we can say, yes, we please God. But, but Enoch had this testimony that his pleasing of God was so consistent that it became characteristic of him, kind of became the, the thing that people noticed most about him was that, wow, this guy is just, I mean, I can't think of anything in Enoch's life that I could say maybe God's not pleased with that. Can you think of anything in your life that you could say, maybe God's not pleased with that? <laughs> I can sure think of some things that uh, I have uh, uh, been responsible for or done or maybe am doing or some attitude or some spirit. Uh, I can think of things in my life that I'm sure I could not find any way to figure out how God would be possibly pleased with that. God's not possibly pleased with some things that we do say. Uh, look at, listen to. God, we couldn't justify it in any way. So that wasn't the case with Enoch. I mean, he was, he was one that uh, at any point in the day, at any time of the night or any time of the morning, the afternoon or whenever it was, you couldn't find him really, you know, in a spirit of complacency. You couldn't find Enoch, uh, you know, just loafing off and being lazy. You couldn't find him complaining about how God treated him or how his wife treated him or how others treated him. You couldn't find him, you know, on Facebook uh, denigrating other people. You couldn't find him doing any of these things. You just couldn't find anything as you follow Enoch around. You're waiting for him to get mad about something and say something uh, unkind. You're waiting for him to get upset about something and go back in the flesh, but he just isn't doing this. You're following him around, you're following him around, you're following him around, and he's just consistent, you know. He's consistent, consistent, consistent with his testimony. Uh, he had this testimony before his translation, the Bible says, that he pleased God. So you know, that's amazing. Now, it took him 365 years to get there, <laughs> but, uh, but he did get there. Now, you say, well, preacher, if I had 365 years, I'd probably make it too. I don't know. I don't know. you got a long way to go <laughs> before before you're there, you you got a lot of lessons to learn yet. So do I. So um, a good translation, what we're talking about here, and uh, could that be said of us? What would what would what would our testimony be if we followed you around for a week and we just stayed with you and just observed you for the whole week? We looked at where you went. We'd let you go into the bathroom by yourself. We wouldn't go there, uh, but uh, we'd look at where you went. We'd look at what you. Uh, did we'd look at your choices during the week we'd see how you interacted with people uh you know we'd just go through the week we'd look at over your shoulder while you was on the computer 
and uh, we would read all the posts that you put on, and we would watch what you read on the posts, and we would see what your uh, television schedule was, and we would listen when you were, were driving in the car with you, and they had a radio on or your CD, or we'd get in with your uh, buds in your ears, and we'd listen to what you were listening to there, and we did that for a week or two or three or four. What would, what would then our testimony to others be about the kind of person you are and the kind of testimony you have? Uh, what would our testimony be? Would it be that, wow, you know, they, they just, uh, they kind of they live their life like they're, like they're interested in pleasing God. That's the way it was with Enoch by the time they, uh, they got to that place. Uh, and uh, we see from, it doesn't really tell us how he pleased God here, how he did that. Doesn't really tell us here. Well, we're looking at this portrait, but when we go back to Genesis five, we find out. We find out in four verses. That's there's not a whole lot we know about Enoch. Well, we know that he was a preacher of righteousness, and we know we have one of his sermons recorded. It's a short sermon, and you're probably thinking, "I wish Pastor would take the hint from that." But uh, it's a short sermon, you know, and he really rails on the ungodly and and uh, that. So. You might like my longer, softer sermons better than his short, harsh sermon. Uh, but uh, anyway, he, we know that about him. But we, there's only four verses in the, in the um, fifth of Genesis that speak of him. Two of those verses give us the uh, reason why that he came to this place where he pleased God. And two of them say, for Enoch walked with God. Enoch walked with God. That's what it was. That was the secret. Enoch walked with God. He just was in step with God. He was in line. He was right there. Uh, God was with him. He was with God. He was unceasing in prayer. I mean, he just, prayer was just, you know, as second nature to him as talking to his wife, talking to his friends. Prayer, talking to God was just as, as ready to him as talking to anybody else, you know. Uh, and so he walked with God. He he, he loved and thirsted after God's direction and God's righteousness. He, he uh, desired the Spirit of God to give him guidance and direction. He, he wanted to know the ways of God in his life. He desired the will of God for himself, and that's what he did. He just walked with God. He ate breakfast, lunch, and dinner. He went to work and did his job. He, he uh, you know, did whatever he did as a living. He brought home a paycheck. He talked about, you know, the news of the day and, and uh, dealt with things that all of us deal with every day, but he walked with God in all of that. He walked with God, and he walked with God, and he walked with God until God just translated him out of there, gave him as an illustration of the rapture, an illustration of what he's going to do with us one of these days, but he walked with God. So uh, that's how he got there. Uh, the, the Bible tells us when his consistent walk really started, he was uh, 65. He was, uh, you know, um, about my age, uh, about 65. So I have a chance still to walk with God yet, you know. Uh, I have a chance still. He was 65, and he had a son by the name of Methuselah. God told him what this son would represent. And, um, you know, the, the name Methuselah that he told uh, Enoch to give to his son meant uh, when he is dead, it shall come. And he said, his life is over. The judgment is going to come. The world's got it coming, and I'm a patient God. I'm a loving God. I am a merciful God. I'm a long-suffering God, but the time is going to come. And so 
I'm going to set this timer with Methuselah. He is going to live and live and live, and when he dies, the judgment on the world is going to come. So Enoch took this very seriously, and he said, My son is God's timepiece. My son's life is the life of the world. My son's life represents the length of time the world has to repent and turn to Christ, turn to God. And so I'm going to need to live for God before my son so that my son doesn't end up wasting his life and dying early and the whole world plunged into darkness before God's purposes for him are finished. And so Enoch made that choice at the birth of his son and he began to walk with God and give a testimony to his son. And, and uh, you know the story, how that Methuselah turned out to be the oldest man who ever lived at 969 years old. My, he must have been a wrinkled fellow by the time he reached uh, that age. But uh, Methuselah was his son and that walk with God began there at that point. We don't know a whole lot about Enoch as we look at him in this portrait picture that we're finding the light focusing on, but we're noticing too with Enoch, the same thing is occurring. We're first focused on Enoch and what he did and what he did not do, and, but all of a sudden now we're, we're drawn up to something in the background that seems to be, you know, seems to be uh, imminent. It's coming to the front and it's becoming the more important part of the portrait. Uh, and uh, it's just Enoch's faith in this glory and this light and this sense of uh, wholeness and fullness and peace and this sense of God behind there that we're looking at as we look over the horizon and see back deep into the picture and it becomes apparent to us that it's not really Enoch that we're glorying in. It's not really Enoch's great ability to generate faith at all. It's something that God has given him and God has blessed him with, and so it's not Enoch we're supposed to focus on at all, really. It's the, it's the one behind him and the one to whom he looks. The object of Enoch's faith is really the central theme of that portrait that we're looking at tonight as we look at Enoch in his life. So as we, as we look at these portraits of faith and the one to whom they're focused, we need to uh, ask God to help us to have Abel's testimony which was a testimony of simple belief in and obedience to God. And then we need to ask God to help us learn a little more from Enoch about how to walk with God. Those two things being so, we're well on our way. We're going to see a lot more portraits of a lot more people as we go through here, men and women alike, uh, as we journey through this gallery. But tonight, he's got us uh, thinking about these two and their message to us. So let's ask the Lord to help us to learn what we need to from the life of these two men and from the God who they loved and served. Let's stand together, give an invitation tonight. If you need to come at the altar and uh, use that this evening, come on ahead.